If you have ever had the privilege of walking through the Sistine Chapel and looked up the 68 feet to see Michelangelo's masterpiece, then you have been in awe. Or simply laid in the grass, away from the city lights on a clear night, and looked up to the millions of miles of our universe. Then you have been in awe. Well, welcome again to In Awe by Bruce, and today we're glad to have Nanette Kirsch with us. She's a journalist major who is owner and president of Big Rock Ideas, an outsourced inbound marketing company. She blogs under Faith Runner and is the author of the book, Denial, Abuse, Addiction, and a Life Derailed, where she tells the story that I'm going to go ahead and let her finish up, but of her husband's first best friend in college, she also has known the person the story's about, David, since college. She's helped him with the company that he ran. Uh, she's godmother to their first daughter. And she has a fantastic story to tell us about you know, how in the midst of horrible things, God is there and God is looking to help us. And he's not somewhere far off. And so, Nanette, thank you for, for coming on and, and going over your, your book and the story and, and presenting how it can help our listeners in their lives. Thanks for having me, Bruce. I think it's a um, really good fit with the focus and mission of your of your podcast, just um, finding God in some of the hardest and darkest places in our lives. Well, and Nanette, the the story is about sexual abuse, and and you know, I just want to note if it's okay that you know you say in the beginning of the book in the foreword that you had experienced that yourself, and so you have a special view on this. As you know, you knew David all these years and then didn't find out till the end that it happened. But but you have some real credential behind what you're saying here. Yes, I think um, part of what drew me to this story was that we had such different experiences of the same trauma. And I think that's true um, for most survivors of sexual abuse, that it is a really prolific area of evil and sin in this mm. world. And people all respond differently depending on a lot of different factors. But um, knowing that I had been through something similar in high school myself and thought I had overcome it and done pretty well, I wanted to understand why his story had turned out so much differently and yes. really answer the question of where God was in both of our lives, you know, where, where God was in the midst of all that. Well, I'm glad you t are taking that on and took it on. And, you know, when you look at the numbers, as, as you uh, know, 60 million adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse one in three women, one in six men or boys and girls mm -hmm. before the age of 18 or by the age of 18. That, that means that as people are listening here, you know, there's probably a lot of people that have been affected this way. So, you know, I, I'll just go ahead and turn it over to you. If you can kick off and kind of tell us, you know, how this all started and, and got going, where that's led you to. Sure. Um, so I'll start at the end, which is um, back in 2009, uh, we received word that the person on whom the character David Wagner was based, um, that he had committed suicide. And um, as you mentioned at the outset, he was a good friend of mine and my husband's, our families. And so it was um, one of the biggest shocks and remains one of the biggest shocks of our lives because there was nothing in our knowledge and familiarity with him and his life. Businessman and entrepreneur, he had started a very successful company. He was married, he had five children, very active in his community and in his church. And, um, literally one of the funniest people we knew. He was just someone whose energy and personality filled any room that he walked into. 
So to receive the news that he had taken his own life was just more than we could understand. And um, in the weeks that followed that, his wife started to share some of what she had been through and um, the fact that she had become aware in the, in the year or two before he died that he had been sexually abused in middle school and that um, she also knew he was leading somewhat of a double life, although it took several years after to realize the scope of what was happening. Um, and so at the time, she asked me if I would tell his story, if I would be, she said, you should write a book about this because it was so incredible, all the things that had happened. I'd never written a book <laughs> and it, mm -hmm. it didn't really feel particularly appealing to me, but I really think it was God's hand. But I, I kept them with me unopened. And um, five years later, I really felt God call me to confront some lingering effects of my own abuse. Um, it mm -hmm. was affecting my marriage. It was affecting um, how I approached a number of relationships, sort of a need to seek approval from people that I, I shouldn't need to, bosses and things like that. Um, but neither here nor there, as I went through um, counseling for the third time, which is an important point that it takes some persistence sometimes to find the right readiness and the right person to help you through it. God really showed me something important. And that was that um, when you can't experience intimacy in your human love relationships, if you don't have that intimacy and trust with the people closest to you, it also diminishes your ability to experience that with God. As he healed me and restored me from that and kind of opened a new part of my heart to him and, and to my husband and to the other people in my life, I felt him tap me on the shoulder and just say, now you have a story to tell. Wow. And so that was the point that I went back and started to go through the boxes. The two boxes became probably 10 or 12 boxes by the end and start to unpack David's story. Wow. And you know, you point to something that's so significant and that's that God is a God of relationships and he wants us to know him intimately when Jesus says, I, knock, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone opens the door, I'll come in and have dinner with them. I'll sup with them. Uh, that was a very intimate time in the New and Old Testament to go in and eat with somebody and spend that time with them. So tell us more about the uh, kind of path as you headed into this. What is it that you know you look at and you go, okay, so you're telling me God's here. How can he be here in the midst of something this horrible, and where do you find him? I will say it was the journey of telling this story, um, interviewing many friends and family members and people um, that surrounded David, and then really going through the journey of telling this story with God's help. I, I mentioned to you off audio that every day I, I got on my knees before I started writing and just prayed for God to give me the words and for this to be the story that he wanted to tell. Mm. And um, what I saw was that as a child, it's a natural and really beautiful thing about childhood that we tend to trust and love without condition or question. And um, when that gets violated by a trusted adult, and especially when that's someone in the clergy, in David's case, he was from a very faith-based family, um, very strong in their church, that tends to reflect back on you then. You think, there must be something wrong with me. There's a sense of shame and a sense of self-contempt that takes root in the heart of a child who's been abused because mm. you've accepted a lie that it's your fault, that there's something bad and unworthy about you. Mm. And in the time that we all grew up, and I'm hoping and praying that that's changing in this next generation, there was no one to tell. There wasn't a thought of going home and telling your mom or your dad right. that this had happened, right? Because you think mm -hmm. it's your fault. So those lies carry over into adulthood. And in David's case, 
his life splintered into an incredible double life where he had all of those beautiful aspects of his life on one hand that we all knew and loved. And on the other side, um, really got plunged into the depths that he um, had a very strong pornography addiction that started to invade more and more of his life with each year that passed. Um, he had issues with infidelity and he began soliciting prostitutes mm. um, at a level that even the private investigator that his wife eventually hired said he had never seen that on a weekly basis, two to three times a week, he was engaged with prostitution. And so that darkness only furthered his own sense of unworthiness, his own sense of his self-contempt, and um, eventually obviously started to impact other areas of his life, his marriage, his family, his work, and, I, and eventually contributed to his death because he never could feel the comfort of the spirit. He never could see himself worthy of, you know, the redemption of a savior. Mm-hmm. You know, when I hear, hear you talk about that, I, I think way back to the 70s when I read a, a book by Hal Lindsey on uh, Satan is alive and well on the planet Earth. And he has a section in there called the guilt trip. And he talks about how, you know, you do something wrong and then you feel horrible about it. And then you promise God you won't do it again, but then you do it again. And that makes you feel worse about it. And you just stay on this spinning wheel until you can see how God really does love you in spite of these things. And he wants to be there and help you. Uh, can you maybe flesh that out more in, in this situation or your situation? Yeah, I, I think you, you nailed it. Um, you know, kind of metaphorically, the, the cover of my book has a Ferris wheel on it. Mm. And it became a real metaphor throughout the story because the first incident of abuse for this character happened on a Ferris wheel. It happened at a church festival, which is such a, um egregious thing, <laughs> right? That it's public. Yes. You're already had the heightened adrenaline and the fear that goes along with that. And then it also just became a metaphor for the rest of his life because as a, as a victim of sexual abuse, you can't go around it. You have to go through it and you have to confront the mm. things that are holding you captive because eventually the abuser exits the scene, right? Um, you know, I think David's abuse ended in high school and he went on to live his life. But then that fight or flight gets misdirected to intimacy, right? To anybody who's trying to get close to you becomes a threat. And so you reject love and closeness and trustworthiness, and certainly with God. And, and I would say, especially when that abuser is someone from within the church, mm -hmm. um, you don't trust God. And right. so that's what we saw play out in a significant way in David's life. And definitely, you know, in my own too. And I think that's one of the one of the messages I've tried to carry as this story has unfolded is that there is no escaping it. I, you know, that um, if you've been sexually abused and you think I'm fine and I don't have issues, if you haven't really confronted the ways that it's impacted your life and your relationships, it, it's sneaky and it's insidious and, and it is stealing joy and life from your days if you haven't addressed that and allowed the Lord in to heal that. So that kind of brings me, is there to the point of how do you pursue regaining that intimacy and allowing God and seeing that he really cares for you in that way. I know it's probably just, there's not a cookie cutter way, but what, what do you do? Do you have some guidance for the people that might be listening? I, I can share what I know didn't work in David's life. And I think the things that I learned did work with me. And I think the hardest thing is acknowledging that it's not your fault and finding the courage to share it with someone. Mm. And David never really did. He did keep a journal. And as you know, that's included in the book because it really does reveal his heart and yes. his faithfulness and his desire to mm -hmm. find God. So he had that, but he never spoke it 
until very close to the end, even to his wife. And I think it was partly compounded by the other ways that it was impacting his life, that his shame was just so overwhelming. And so I think the first thing, as simple as it sounds, is acknowledging to yourself that it's not your fault what happened to you, that um, being exploited as a child is never your fault. And almost every victim, and I've, I've talked to a lot of them, obviously, in the, in the process of sharing this story, yeah. will tell me their story, but then explain why it was their fault. I was a young employee and I, I agreed to go into this room alone with this man or you're not responsible for someone committing a crime against you. So once you acknowledge that core lie, you open the door to start to allow God to put the pieces in place. And the counselor that I worked with really helped me understand that connection between intimacy and comfort from God's spirit and the need mm -hmm. to trust who he sees you as. I think one of the most profound experiences for me in my healing was one of my big lingering manifestations was I wanted to please everybody and I could not take being human. So when my best wasn't good enough, it wrecked me. And oh. so I worked super hard, right? But I, that that was it. If, if my best wasn't good enough, I was destroyed. And he finally said to me on our last call, he said, do you realize you will never be whole until you stop looking for your worth from other people and start looking to the Lord. It just hit me between the eyes. I thought, oh my gosh, that's what I do. And I think that was a big remnant of being abused and trying to make that situation right in a very futile way. Yeah. And so I started a journey that day that I think continues to this day that I am always susceptible to those situations because that's part of my nature, but I recognize them sooner. And I speak the identity over myself that the Lord's given me, which is I am a beloved daughter of the King, and I try to live a life that's worthy of that identity. Mm, boy, you know, and I think that is a great key because as you look at the, the New Testament, Paul tries to make it very clear that when we become Christians, there's so many things true of us, and the words that he uses in Christ— if you look through like Ephesians chapter 1, he talks about all the things that are true of you in Christ, that you're forgiven, you've been redeemed, that you're loved, like you said, yeah. beloved, and, and, and all these different things. And, and so I think that identity is so important. If I can, this is hearken. I hearken back to an Old Testament uh, verse that is one of my favorites, uh -huh. and it's, it's of Gideon. And the Midianites are, are attacking and they're taking over and they're stealing all their crops and everything like that. And Gideon is actually down in a wine press hiding. And God comes to him and says, hail mighty warrior. And he's down there hiding. <laughs> and, and, you know, he's got to be looking around going, okay, is there somebody behind me? You know? Right. And basically God's trying to communicate to him that I see you as who I can make you and yeah. who you are me. You know, not who you see yourself as. And that's the way I want you to see you. And, and that's the way he wants us to see us. One of the scripture verses that really guided the launch of this book for me was in Mark 4, where it says there's nothing hidden that won't be revealed. And the importance of light, that there are no secrets, right? And a pastor at the church we attended always said his mantra was, you can only be loved to the extent that you are known. I think that willingness to know that there are no secrets between us and God. He knows us. He knows what's happened. He knows our darkest secrets. And he loves us unconditionally, right? That no matter what blame we place on ourselves, we have the opportunity, like you said, to embrace an identity in Christ and to be free from that and to be restored from that. And I think my hope is just that 
David's story and the sharing, uh, you know, just bringing into the light the reality of how prolific sexual abuse is and, and the fact that you're not alone in it and yeah. that there's hope, right? It doesn't, it doesn't have to be the end of your story, that it will encourage people just to think about who do they trust that they can speak to about it and, mm-hmm. and where is it stealing life from them? Wow. You, you have a phrase in, in the book about secrets and the fact that they're devastating to mm-hmm. keep. That really did hit hard uh, as I was reading that in the sense that you just go, yeah, this secrets, secrets kill us. And, and, you know, God does know everything. Nothing, nothing's hidden. And so we can talk to him about any of that and go to him. And that's why he tells us to run to him like little children, yeah. run into the throne room and, and be there before him and, and talk about it with him and, and get the power and the strength and the encouragement that, as you said, tell somebody else and, and be able to then to uh, realize that, hey, there are people out there that understand and will help you and that love you and and want to you know cheer you on to victory over it. Well, and that's part of how um, David's family responded. The the quote that you're referencing was mm-hmm. one that his widow actually used: "That secrets make you sick." Yes. And in the aftermath of this, she and I talked a lot about the impact that telling this story might have on the kids. The oldest child was 14 when their dad died. I wanted it to be a blessing. I wanted them to have context for what yes. happened to their dad and, and how the hard things about his adult life were tied into the suffering that he had and just give them a whole picture of who he was and how human he was and how much he loved mm-hmm. them. And so we talked about that a lot. And um, what we came back to was in the absence of truth, kids come up with their own truth and it's usually worse. Mm-hmm. And so um, we've risked it and trusted the truth and God to minister to them through this story. And it really has. And I think that's been the biggest blessing to me. Wow. And what I respect them for is their willingness to share it and try to help other people on a very consistent basis. You know, when, um, when I finished the manuscript, the oldest son was one of the first to read it besides Mm -hmm. his mom. I said to him, I said, if you don't want me to publish it, I'll print five and you each can have one and we'll call it a day. And, you know, I'll say that was God wow. me as well. Cause I had spent three years on this book <laughs> <laughs> and, but I meant it. I mm-hmm. would only do it. And he said, no, I really believe it can help people. And he said, I, I wouldn't be satisfied if there were just five. So really at the end of the day, I think so much credit goes to those young people too, to have made that change, right? They've learned from their dad's right. experience. They're living in the light of truth and they're allowing that to be a, a blessing to others. And I think the same thing could have happened to David mm-hmm. if he had had the, the ability to do the same, you know, if he'd had the ability to step into that light, I think what an incredible story he would have had to share of his own experience and God's redemption. Boy. As it says, the truth shall set you free, and it does. Secrets make you sick. As you've been through all this, read all this, your own experiences, the family, what has really stunned you about how God works in all this? You've you've said different things, but if you had to kind of narrow it down in your life, what is it that brings you in awe of God to continue moving forward? I think when I was just about done with the writing, and I went back to try to think about one of my unanswered questions still was, where was God, right? That mm-hmm. in the journals, especially, you see David crying out for God's comfort. And I kept asking God that, where were you? And at the end of the day, and, and I went back and I rewrote part of the preface after I understood that God was with him. And it's such a hard answer. In some ways, it's so comforting to know that God is with us in the worst times. And we wish that he would intervene, especially for the sake of a child and change the direction of mm-hmm. what's happening. 
I think in, in some ways he does, right? Because it is never over, but it's always free will. And it's always our choice to, to lay down our lives and invite God to do what he does. And so the comfort I found and the answer I found that I think really brings hope is that we're never alone in these things. Um, mm. God's right beside us. He hurts with us. He cries with us. And he will redeem even the worst things in our lives for good. And I believe I'm a testimony to that. If you had told me five years ago that I would be spending a good portion of my life talking about my own journey through sexual abuse, I would uh -huh. have said, absolutely not. <laughs> not <laughs> right? going to become the front of my weakness. list. Yeah, he takes the weakness. He takes the thing that we're most needing to surrender to him and uses that for his good. I wanted to ask you, too, just in the past week, horrible things come up with the same thing, sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Church. Any thoughts that you have with what's going on, especially in those realms where you have the religious authorities committing these crimes? Any thoughts uh, as far as for churches that would help or guidance? Yeah, I think the... Um... You know, when when I started this journey several years ago, the hard thing was getting people to believe the statistics you mentioned at the beginning, that one in three females and one in four, six males will be abused by the time they're 18 years old. And people say, oh, I, I don't know. I think that number's high. Well, now that's not hard to believe. It almost seems like it might be low. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? And where it occurs is just astounding. I mean, if you accept the spiritual battle, the spiritual um, battlefield that we live in, it's not surprising that our enemy would use something so effective in separating people from God as a weapon in the church, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, what what a great way. And yeah. it's so disheartening and I think almost leads to the point of despair because when there is power, there's that kind of corruption. And so um, I actually just wrote a piece this week talking about, I don't know that we can spend energy trying to change leadership and trying to address what's happening in the leadership of some of these churches. Mm -hmm. But I think where change is possible is with us as the faithful, that we are the church. And I think the call on us right now is to love victims unconditionally, to recognize that we're the church. So when we want to fight for the church, we have to fight for the people who are in the church, not the institutions, and to be vocal, you know, that it feels overwhelming and it feels like what impact can I have? But I think the only impact that can be made are by the people who are willing to stay in their churches and fight for those changes and, and protect victims and mm -hmm. demand accountability, right? Um, this is a legal question and it needs a legal remedy. It isn't something that churches should be addressing on their own. And, and we all have the ability to know. I look at the big cases that have come out and everybody knew but nobody yeah. wants to believe it. And I think one of the third area of that is understanding that the person who's the abuser is the last person you'd ever think, right? They're charming, they're charismatic, they're close to a lot of people in those organizations. And so, you know, in the Pennsylvania grand jury report, when the priests mm -hmm. were named, I read so many articles. Well, it couldn't be father so-and-so. He was there for my family. You know, that's who it is. It's all of us. It's the, the predators are close to you. And I think- mm. Overcoming your disbelief is just as important. Wow. Really good point. I just want to say how much I appreciate you coming on today and sharing your story and how impactful your book, Denial, Abuse, Addiction, and a Life Derailed is. It's extremely readable. It's written very well, and, and it's very impactful. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we close up the, the podcast? The one other thing I'd love to offer to your listeners, and I, yeah. I 
I'm doing it sort of quietly right now, but um, I really felt God put on my heart at the beginning of this year that um, I want he to share my story, not as my own personal journey, but as a journey through God's faithfulness. And so I've started a blog called overcomesexualabuse.org. I've only written a handful of posts, I think five or six to this point, but have touched on moments during my abuse and moments, what I shared my post this past week was called worthy. And it was about what I shared with you in terms of where I was looking for my worth. But um, I feel like it's something that'll resonate with people who have been abused and are trying to figure out what impact it's having in their lives. And so I would definitely invite your listeners to be among my first readers on that one. Okay. um, Well, that's great. Well, thank you very much. And, you know, we'll have links to everything on our website for all the things you're doing, your book and all that. But I uh, just want to say that also I think we can pray for you and, and what you're trying to do and also pray, as you said, that you know we come to believe that this is happening even by people that we think are really nice people. Pray for the victims and we can pray for our churches that, that there can come to some resolve that this spiritual warfare, this attack upon us so insidious that we can find ways to to turn it around and bring God into the midst of this and bring life and hope to everybody. Definitely, definitely. And I I do think as painful as it is to witness that God is on the move in our churches. You know, this Mm -hmm. cleansing is difficult, but important and valuable. Definitely. Well, again, Nanette, thank you so much. And you have a great day. We appreciate everything. Thanks, Bruce. All right. God bless.